0: We kicked off our second video of our sermon series titled The Economy of Love, and it dealt primarily with marriage and family, and it wrestled with the question, when it comes to family, what are we saying yes to? When it comes to family, what are we saying yes to? And do we view spreading God's love as one of the primary callings and purposes of our family? So we're going to watch just the the final scene of the video we watched last week. And while we're watching Evan and his friend kind of go through some biblical families, just try to pay attention to some patterns of sin or some themes of sin that you notice or discover in these families and how that just brought division and destruction in their lives. So, let's roll that film. goes into the soil and the soil is the foundation for the flourishing of the crops and you know in God's design a healthy family is the foundation of a healthy society yeah you know, I guess I could see it I mean God's design is for families kind of all over the place you can see it in compost you can see it in you know like Norman Rockwell stuff like the Huxtables that's another good sign and you know where else you can see it I think to see it really well we have to The big book, that is. Let's do it. We'll start with the first family of all civilization. Adam, Eve, Cain, and Herb. Hmm. Moving right along, I hope we go to the second family. Uh, By the way, we had uh, many sons. Except that first one, wasn't with his wife. Remember, it was with a uh, servant, her And didn't he leave them in the desert to die? Mm-hmm. The son that he did have, the promised son, mm-hmm. he took him to a mountain to kill him. Yeah. Okay, 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 Dave. Yeah, you got the whole Bathsheba thing, though, you know. That is true. Messing around with his friend's wife. Oh, and then the son raped the daughter, and they all went to war. Well, and then you have, you know, Gilmer running around on Hosea, Samson, and Delilah. Judah sleeping with the daughter-in-law, she was Lies, incest, murder. The deepest truths about marriage and family, they are in the Bible. We just have to dig deeper. Now, in light of what we just saw in that video, it's kind of funny how we can have just misconceptions about families in Scripture. You would think it's it's God's word. It's kind of the holy book that these families would be amazing examples to us, righteous and God-fearing. But we, we find there, are their families kind of looking like ours, just broken and messed up, and in some instances, probably even more messed up than our families. So here's my question to you guys. What was at the root of some of those dysfunctional families discussed in the video? What were some of the sins that were just the root of the problems that caused division and destruction in their lives? What were some of the sins? Anybody? The floor is open. Absolutely. Jealousy. Cain, very jealous of his brother. What else? Selfishness, yes. All of them. Greed, Greed, absolutely. Yes, what else? Lust, yeah. Adultery. Incest. (laughs) Sexual abuse, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, taking... Yeah, taking matters into your own hands, wanting to not wanting to wait on God's timing. Just doing what you want. Yeah, definitely. So let's dissect these families a little bit. So we have the first couple of all human existence, Adam and Eve. They went on to have a few sons. Their first two sons were Cain and Abel. Through a series of events, Cain became extremely jealous and angry towards Abel. One day he took him to a field and killed him. So the first child, it's kind of crazy, the first child of all human existence killed his younger brother. And we have Father Abraham, who had many sons. And he was kind of chosen by God to be the father of the people of Israel. Um, He was kind of promised the promised land, which would become the land of Israel. But his first son wasn't even with his own wife, Sarah. It was with his wife's maidservant, Hagar. And then, like the video said, He left Hagar and his son alone in the desert to basically die. The extreme weather conditions could have easily killed them. And then we have David, who was the king of Israel. And scripture tells us he was a man after God's own heart. Boy, did his family have problems. He committed adultery with his friend's wife, who was actually at war fighting on David's behalf. So he's sleeping with his friend's wife while his friends fighting for his behalf. Then, through lies and deceit and guilt, not wanting to mess with it, he had her husband, Uriah, killed. And then one of David's sons went on to rape his daughter. So we have adultery, murder, sexual abuse, and incest, just all within David's immediate family. In the video, it said that in God's design, a healthy family is the foundation of a healthy society. And God is in the business of taking broken, messed up families and turning in and doing something beautiful with them. So let's examine a family who seemed to get it right. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. It seemed like this family had a pretty good idea of what they were saying yes to, even though they knew it was going to be hard. It was probably more difficult than what they ever could have imagined. So we're going to look at Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus. So... It should be page 675, if you're using a pew Bible. Matthew chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 18. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, And he gave him the name Jesus. And this passage is just the beginning of the struggles that Mary and Joseph were going to experience. And they both had a lot of excuses to not say no, uh, to not say yes to becoming the parents of Jesus. For starters, Mary would have been about 14 years old when the angel came and spoke to her. And said that she was going to become pregnant, even though she was a virgin. And oh, by the way, that baby that's going to be in your womb, he's going to be the son of God who's going to save all of mankind from their sins. If that didn't blow your mind enough, if you put yourself in her shoes, then she had to deal with the constant humiliation and the pointing of fingers by her friends. I mean, imagine Mary going, some of her friends are a social gathering. Hey guys, so I'm I'm pregnant, um, but I didn't have sex with anyone. Um, It was actually God who impregnated me. Who would believe that. If you would believe that, you're, you're lying. You're a liar. And imagine what Joseph uh, must have went through during this time. His friends saying, do you, dude, do you actually believe that like, God impregnated her? She cheated on you, bro. She cheated on you. There's God did not get her pregnant. That is impossible. And then when Jesus was only two, uh, Mary and Joseph found out that King Herod wanted to kill their baby son. So they, they fled to Egypt just for the safety of their family. And that would have been about a hundred mile journey from where they were living in Israel. So imagine yourself having to travel a hundred miles by foot through the desert with a two-year-old baby. That would be a horrific experience. Now I'm sure they had some good years as a family. Watching Jesus grow up growing in their love for each other. But then their son started to experience constant rejection from people around him. He was rejected and betrayed by his closest friends when he needed them the most. He experienced ultimate humiliation. Mary watched it as he hung on a cross completely naked for anyone and everyone to see. And then she watched her own son lay down his own life in order that he could give life to others. So not much in the life of their family was easy. And they knew that the purpose of their family was to bring healing and hope and life to others. And the story that they wrote with their life was a lot different than the stories of the lives of their ancestors. And they had their fair share of suffering like their ancestors did. But what separated them apart was that they believed in God's faithfulness. Even when it didn't make sense, even when you're 14 and you're told that you're going to become pregnant even though you're a virgin and nothing makes sense, they've still believed in his faithfulness and followed through with what he had for them. And God's followers, as God's followers, were his representatives in the world and we can trust he will provide what we need to share his love with others. You can go ahead and put that next slide up, Todd. They knew that it's really when only one dies to their own selfishness that they can experience life. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And then he also said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And the reality is that none of us grew up in perfect families, and if we were all honest, most of us probably grew up in somewhat dysfunctional families. And that can flesh itself out in a lot of different ways. Maybe a distant or detached father, a controlling mother, an alcoholic brother. Some, maybe even a lot of us, have suffered from verbal abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, or even sexual abuse. And this brokenness extends beyond just our childhood and our teenage years Because none of us have perfect families now, regardless of what stage of life that we're in. Single, married, or divorced. But even though that's the reality for most of us, just the brokenness and the sin in our lives and family, we often try to hide it from other people. We try to hide our brokenness, especially those of us involved in a church community. For myself, growing up in church my whole life, I always felt this need on Sunday mornings or Wednesday at youth group, to kind of pull a Houdini and make my sorrow and sadness magically disappear. I remember my, um, my freshman year of college, my best friend and I kind of had a falling out. Our lives went separate ways. Pretty much our friendship was done, and I knew it, and it was a really awkward and painful time for me. And the people in the church I was a part of, they knew the situation. They knew both of us, and you know, kind of the uh, the couple of months after the fallout, everybody would pat me on the back. Hey, how you doing? And I just would put on this fake face. Hey, man, I'm doing great. Like things are good. Not even acknowledging that I'm hurting because I was just too embarrassed to let them see my suffering and my pain. I felt guilty because the joy of the Lord is supposed to be your strength, but it didn't feel like it at all. It felt pretty horrible. And so rather than being honest with people, I just basically lied to them and told them that everything was fine. And myself, along with a lot of Christians that I know, uh, tend to avoid honestly just portraying our brokenness for what it is. Instead, we try to polish, sugarcoat things to make people, you know, assume that we have our lives figured out. And we've all been wounded by our friends and family in some way or another. And a problem for many people, even Christians, is that we tend to use our families as a crutch. We can throw emotional and just internal pity parties. If we had parents that mistreated us or a spouse that mistreats us, we can just kind of think, you know what, I've been beat up so much. How could God use someone like me? I've been told I'm worthless my whole life. How could God ever use me? If we grew up in a house with parents that didn't really support us, they weren't emotionally able to connect with us, they didn't believe in us, chances are we probably went through most of our lives with a victim mentality thinking that people owe us, thinking that everyone's out to get us. And so we just let a couple of broken relationships, maybe with mom and dad, dictate the way that we see everybody and the way that we treat everybody and perceive everyone out to get us. And I'm aware that not not everyone here today has a family of their own. Not everyone here today is married or has children, and that's totally fine. But if you're a believer... You do belong to a spiritual family, the family of God. And my experience in being a part of the family of God is that brokenness is just as rampant in the church and in church community as it is in people who aren't even saved, or aren't even Christians. And if you've spent any significant time involved in a church, chances are somebody's probably hurt you. Someone said or did something to you that really cut you deeply, it pierced you deeply. Maybe they took advantage of you. And if the truth be told, you've probably hurt some people yourself. So when we think about family, whether it's immediate family, the family of God, the people that we do life with, we have no idea of knowing what kind of trouble is going to come our way. But we do know what's going to come. Jesus tells us in John that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world, in this life, we will have trouble. But take heart because Christ has overcome the world. Our focus needs to be more on our Redeemer than than on our problems. I know that's so easy to say. Our focus needs to be more on our Redeemer than on our problems. So here's something to wrestle with. When marital conflicts arise, what do we focus on? When your friends hurt you, when your family member hurts you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? When your life is falling apart, everything is just horrible, what consumes your mind? What is on your mind? If you're like me, a lot of times when everything's falling apart, when my pet's heads are falling off, all I can see is that big pile of manure sitting in my driveway, just looking at me with a cherry on top, and I'm looking at it, and I just think, how... There's no way God can do something good with this. This person is a disaster. Our relationship is just falling apart. This situation is beyond repair. And that's all I can see is that big pile of poop sitting in my driveway. Rarely do I stop and remind myself of God's nature. And that's what we're going to talk about for a little bit. Scripture makes it very clear on what God's nature is. So we're going to do a little exercise, not physical exercise like CrossFit or jumping Jacks, but we're going to do a little biblical exercise. So get your Bibles out. We're going to put up a couple passages here on the screens. I'm going to give you guys a couple minutes to sit in silence, uh, to read these, uh, to look these up, and to meditate on them. You go ahead and put those up, Todd. And as you're reading through these, uh, consider what they say about God's nature. And consider what they say about our nature as human beings. So take a few minutes in silence to reflect on those, and then we'll have a short discussion about what they say about God's nature and our nature. After reading that, what does scripture tell us about God's nature and about our nature? He loves us, absolutely, more than we can imagine. Good, what else? We are sinful, fallen people, and he's a compassionate God who still loves us. What else? Renee. Yeah, yeah, he's done amazing things for us, so we often forget those incredible things that he's done for us. What else? We've been sinners since day one, We've been since day one. yes, absolutely. Well, day. Yeah, yeah, he shows us his great mercy every day, the love he extends to us. Anybody else? God's nature is to heal, redeem, and restore. And that's what we need to remind ourselves when troubles come, even though that is like the hardest thing to do, to remind ourselves of his nature. That should be our first thought. Then our next thought should be reminding ourselves of what a pain in the rear that we can be to God at times. Remind ourselves of how much we've been forgiven. Think of all the times we turned our back on him and not stood up for him. Or walked away from Him and rejected Him. Because remember, God said yes to us. He said yes to us, even though we came with a lot of baggage. He deals with our jealousy and our arrogance and our selfishness and our lust every single day. Every day He deals with that. He still says yes to us. So when we put on a lens that reminds us of God's character and nature. To love us and to heal and restore. And we put on another lens of reminding of how much we've been forgiven, if we start seeing the world through that perspective, way healthier, way more biblical to see things from God's perspective. And looking at our troubles from those, from those types of lenses shatters the idea that life owes us something, or that people owe us, or that we're somehow always the victim. And the truth, too, is that Jesus could have said no, to us, in the same way that we are often tempted to say no to others, when we don't want to forgive someone who's wronged us, Jesus could say no to forgiving us, but he doesn't. When we don't want to humble ourselves and serve others, he could have said no to humbling himself and hanging on uh, that cross naked and laying down his own life. And as Bob said last week, this is huge. This is what, uh, him, Here's what it means to live like Christ. It means extending the things to others that Christ has extended to us. It means extending the things to others that Christ has extended to us. So if you've received Christ's forgiveness, you are expected to forgive others. If you've been forgiven by God, you have no right to withhold forgiveness from other people. Just as God laid down his life for us, we're called to lay down our lives for others through the giving of our time and our talents and our resources, and our money, and our emotional space, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and our physical space. And for me personally, just to be honest, for a good chunk of my life, I've had this just skewed view of kind of how God views me Um, when I sin. I kind of see him a lot um, looking down on me in disgrace and disgust when I would do or say something that I knew was contrary to what he wanted and so it was kind of this works salvation mentality where if I do good, then the floodgates of heaven will open up and my life's going to be awesome. Everything's going to fall apart. But if I sin, he, he's, some, he's turning his back on me. Somehow his love for me decreases and he looks at me in disgust. And so for me personally, I have to remind myself that God's forgiveness towards me extends to everything I've ever done, everything I will do. And I have to I don't have to beat myself up in guilt because I know that I'm one of his children in whom his joy is found, in whom his joy is found. And um, referring to Jesus, Hebrews 12 had this to say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the joy set before him was knowing that his children could be set free and that they could be healed. That was the joy set before him. That's why he hung naked on that cross and gave his life away for ours. And it's the same reason why we lay down our lives for others through the giving of all that we are. So that other people can experience healing and hope and be set free and experience the abundant life in Christ. And as we come to the communion table today, we have the opportunity to reflect on the way that we're currently viewing our family. It could be your immediate family. It could be kind of those people that you do life with. It could be your church family, maybe here at Wellspring. And to consider, what's the joy on the other side of the struggle that you might be in right now? What's the joy on the other side of the struggle that you might be in right now? Is it to know that even though things are really painful and messy, that God's going to bring healing? It may not come you know, on your time, but that he's going to bring healing. Are you seeing your relationships and your circumstances with a proper perspective, one that reminds yourself of God's nature to heal and to redeem, and one that reminds yourself of how much you've been forgiven, of how you were one time that prodigal son that turned your back on him? And I want to give us all a few minutes to sit in silence and reflect on what God's speaking to you and to remember the sacrifice that he made for us. And just as he laid down his life for ours, we're called to lay down all that we are for other people. So I'll pray and then we'll have a few minutes of silence. And as you come forward and uh, dip the bread in the juice, just remember how much you've been forgiven and how much God's done for you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. Jesus, for your amazing love and sacrifice for us and how you desire for families to be healthy and thrive and how you want us to see our literal families and our church families as being your, emb- your embodiment here on earth to give life to others by laying down our own. God, I thank you for your nature and how you are a God of healing and love and restoration and you want to take broken things in our lives and make them beautiful god we give you this time i pray you speak to our hearts help people to be open god to what you um just have to say to us i pray that our hearts would be in tune to you and surrender to you jesus name